Well, as I mentioned earlier, we're in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24 today, and we're going to jump right in. Um, hopefully, you've already marked your spot there. If not, turn fast or look at the screen, but let's stand together. If you are able, in honor of the reading of God's word and attentiveness to the voice of the Lord in the scriptures. Genesis 2, 18 through 24. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground... The Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do believe this is your word, every jot and tittle of it, inspired by your spirit and given to us for our good. We believe, Lord, every time we open it, that you have something to say to us in it. And Lord, you know far better than we do even what that is we need to hear today. So we come with open ears and open hearts asking that you would speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory and our good. And Lord, would you move me out of the way and use my voice as your instrument today to speak to those gathered here and online in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, for those who have been with us for some time, you know we're continuing to look in the first two chapters of Genesis at God's good design in the beginning, his design for the world and for humanity as he created it. Because there we find, even though we don't live in that original creation before sin entered and before all of the fall and failure and all of that that comes along with it, we, we don't live there, and yet we can look there to get clarity on um, how we might live according to his design and therefore expect uh, more of his favor and blessing and the goodness that he um, created in the world as he designed it. And so this morning we're looking at his original design for marriage, as I mentioned, and that sheds light on our understanding for what's good for us in the 20th century. I would say a couple of things in Uh, Just kind of by way of preface. Number one, these next three messages will be marriage, family, sexuality. And um, they're all very interrelated as all these messages kind of have been already. I mean, you could just about change the order of any number of them 
and it would sort of make sense. But that'll be the next three messages so you know what to expect. And I say that in part so that parents have a, uh, a fair warning <laughs> so that they might decide on any given uh, Sunday um, who they want to bring with them. Um, the other thing I would mention, though, is as we look at these subjects in the series, it, it has, these messages have personal application to us, personal relevance to us on an individual level. Um, but I'm primarily interested in looking at what does this say for us, not mostly for me. It's not, what it, it's not how this applies to you first, it's how it applies to y'all. Right, so so as a, what is this? What 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 direction does this give to us as a society, to us as a church collectively? And so we're really primarily looking at this at that level. Again, it has some implications for us um, personally, but as we speak to the subject of marriage, um, what's obviously true in any in any group of people, just about of any size. There are people who are unmarried, who've never been married, and maybe won't be married. They are single. God has given them a gift, even, of singleness. There are those who were married and now aren't, either by way of divorce or they've been uh, widowed and so on and so forth. And so I, we, we never want to come to this subject um, implying that anybody who is not married isn't quite right or isn't sort of all the way put together isn't good enough. That it really is, it's just not true. You read all of the Bible and you clearly uh, get that message. But, um, but again, I, I, I have a special interest in this message and doing a more of a flyover to see for us as a people, as a nation, as a civilization, what do we, what do we learn about God's design for marriage that would instruct us today. And so I want to look at three of God's intentions in marriage, and we're doing so fairly quickly today because uh, we also have the Lord's Supper that we'll be partaking of uh, later. So if it feels, um, if it feels quicker, it, it is that on purpose. If it's not quicker, well, you know me, and I just have a hard time with that. But three intentions, three of God's intentions for marriage. Number one, companionship. You all know that this sermon series, It Is Good, gets its title from the fact that everything in the beginning was good. Everything God created was good. And it says that over and over and over, especially in the first chapter of Genesis. He created this and it was good. It was good. It was good. And so it's striking here in verse 18 that we read, God says for the first time, it is not good. It is not good. It's not good that man should be alone. And all the husbands say, amen. <laughs> and the wives say, mm-hmm. You don't even know. <laughs> you don't even know. But, uh, but he's really not talking about that. I mean, like, like that's actually true for many uh, for many of us, is really not talking about that. But again, in, in looking at man as the sort of prototype or model for humanity, this project is unfinished. Again, it's, 
uh, it's important for us to say there's nothing flawed about what God created there. But in, this, in a similar way where he, it says you know, where he created the earth and yet it would not produce by itself all of what it was capable of producing when man worked the ground. Do you remember that? It had potential that would, the earth itself had potential that would not be realized except through the activity of human beings. That was in the earlier part of chapter 2. In a similar sense, the project is unfinished, this creation of humanity, where it's just man by himself. It doesn't say that man is not good. It's just not good that he's alone. And at the most basic level, what that implies is that people are made for relationship. We're not made to be alone. And most of us could attest to the fact that it is not healthy for us to be alone for uh, any extended length of time. And some people live that Struggle is part of their reality. I mean, they're, they're kind of in a place in life where, where that's their station and it, and it takes much more effort uh, to, to, to stay in connection with other people because they, they need it, but we do need it. I mean, it's instructive of the fact that one of the harshest punishments in prison is solitary confinement. Instructive also that people who sail solo for months at a time out in the open ocean. One of their great concerns is just going crazy. Literally. People will uh, pack books to read just to keep their minds uh, active because it's just not good to be alone. We're made for relationship. But of course it goes uh, beyond that. That, that here it's not just any old relationship, but that he designs in that setting where it's not good for man to be alone, uh, he designs marriage as the answer to that. Again, it doesn't mean that everyone is supposed to be married or that a spouse is the answer to all your problems. Yeah, again, amen, right? Amen. Thought it might be, no. Uh, let's not get ourselves in trouble now. Yeah. Monica said, watch out. Um, but, but it is, but, but listen, it, you know, that's actually, that, that would be a, a, a valuable little note for some people, uh, particularly maybe younger people who aren't yet married to write down or younger people who are newly married because there are a lot of people who now think about relationships in terms of what they can get out of them, which is kind of, it's sort of natural to think about. I mean, all kinds of, life, uh, all kinds of things in life we think about, um, the, the, the pleasure or sense of fulfillment we will derive from our employment, from where we live, from vacations we take, and so forth. And there are people who go into marriage with that mindset. And, and, and it won't do it. If marriage won't do it, your spouse, that your spouse can't live up, can't bear that weight. 
And it is one of the reasons, I think, when, uh, when, when we look at trends culturally and that sort of thing and why marriage rates are declining, I mean, one of the reasons is you've got a younger generation looking around and seeing lots of failed marriages and all of the hurt and hardship created by that and, and just kind of do a real practical evaluation and go, nah, I don't think so. But many others, uh, again, look at relationships in terms of uh, kind of what what's in it for me or what can I get out of it and so forth and just make an assessment and go, I don't think uh, marriage is really necessary. But God intended more than that, not for somebody who will just make us happily ever after. In the course of naming um, all the animals we go on to read here, Adam found that none of them was sufficient. None of them was sufficient. That what what God had uh, designed for him that hadn't yet been created was another person that was going to provide that companionship. But that's one of the things, one of his intentions in marriage is for companionship. Second is complementarity. I apologize for using that big word that might be hard for you to pronounce. But complementary in the sense that, uh, you know, one sort of completes another. I use that word carefully because, again, uh, it, is, it is not like a spouse is going to be for me all the things I'm not for myself or complete me in an absolute sense. But, uh, but that, that, is, that is some of what's conveyed here. There's a complementary relationship between husband and wife, and that's there by design. Two of the key words here that indicate that are uh, helper and fit for. He said in verses 18 um, and 20, first in, in verse 18 there, I will make a helper fit for him. This is part of the answer. God says uh, it's not good for man to be alone, and so I will create a helper fit for him. The word helper in Hebrew refers to uh, the kind of helper who would need assistance uh, facing from, from something facing you in, ad, in adversity, including like warfare uh, or, or, or help in battle. In other words, what we, what we might think of this from a cultural standpoint is not just uh, the man can't do it all, so he needs... He needs a woman to be help around the house or something. But what it, there, there are probably all kinds of immediate associations you have with what it means to be a helper. And probably they all fall a little short of what this word implies. This word, Hebrew word, ezer, not that you need to know that word, but it is, uh, it's used 14 other times besides here in these two, two references in Genesis 2. It's used 14 other times in the Old Testament. Um, I believe nine of those 14 refer to help from the Lord himself. That the Lord is the helper. And in other cases, again, uh, probably three of those other references or something like that refer to the kind of helper that comes along uh, to a king or a warrior or whatever to help in battle. Now, I don't know what picture that provides for you in the kind of help that woman was intended to provide for the man. 
but it, it, it might suggest that the, uh, that, the, that the better picture of that is not um, her wearing an apron, but her wearing a shield and a sword. To be a real, uh, a real partner in the fight, so to speak. Uh, to be a partner alongside him in all that life demands of him. But I would simply say that if that word is used uh, primarily with reference to the kind of help that the Lord himself is called to provide, that's a, that's a high kind of help. That's a big helper. The second word, though, that is uh, particularly uh, illuminating here or significant is this word that's translated in the ESV, fit for, a helper fit for him, or, uh, or, or can mean, it, it says, in fact, if you have the ESV, there's a footnote there. It says it can also mean corresponding to. But it's, this word here, this Hebrew word is made up of a prefix, a root, and a suffix. The three parts to the word, and I'm not going to get into the weeds of that, sort of the, the technicalities of that. I, I would simply say uh, that the, the root word itself is, is, is a common one. It's used over a hundred times in the Old Testament. But it's often used to refer to one who is uh, like standing facing another person. Or standing before a congregation like I'm standing right now. Or in front of. But it has this, it carries this kind of meaning of opposite. Okay, so like if you were doing, you know, you're learning, uh, you know, the square dance or some kind of line dance or somewhere. And it says, you know, uh, somebody says, stand opposite your partner. All right. So facing, uh, opposed to, this word has that sort of connotation to it. But when you put the, 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 the prefix and the root and the suffix together, it could literally mean uh, to make a helper like opposite him. God made for man a woman to be like and opposite corresponding to. Think about if you're, um, if you're having a hard time getting your mind around what that means. I did that on purpose. <laughs> I want you to struggle with that a little bit. Like opposites. Now you may know right off, you and your spouse are, I'm not sure about the like, but I know we're opposite, you know. But think about a trailer and a trailer hitch for example, in the way they, cor- they correspond to one another. Think about a plug and an outlet. If you've ever traveled internationally, you know that not every plug corresponds with every outlet. Anybody ever learned that the hard way? No. In other words, it's not sufficient simply to have opposites but like opposites, ones that correspond with each other, that are made to fit together. This is God's design for male and female, for man and woman to be like opposites. They are made to correspond with one another. 
that has implications. We'll get into uh, in this point number three as well as uh, in the next couple of weeks. But man didn't just need someone to help him plow the fields. Right? You remember, a big part of the purpose man was given was work. He was told to, t- to work and keep the garden, but he didn't need simply a helper who could help him plow the fields. An ox would have done just fine for that. Or a horse. He had and the, all the animals paraded before him, named them all. None of them was the kind of helper that God intended for him. He didn't just need help doing work. He didn't need just the kind of friendship or companionship that a pet could provide. And pets make good companions, don't they? I mean, we've j- joked about this a little bit, but it's, it's really very true. Our pets are special to us in many cases, and they make great friends, great companions. But man needed companionship uh, that no animal could provide. God didn't give him Uh, Adam, that is, just a hunting buddy or a drinking buddy. Not that Adam was, you know, distilling alcohol at that point or anything. But, uh, you know, he, he didn't give Adam simply a friend. Which meets a lot of needs, right? Especially in, in sort of a world that's otherwise a lonely world. He didn't give him just a buddy or a friend or another man in any respect. God gave the man a woman. He, it would appear, administered, if you read there, administered some sort of general anesthesia, put Adam in a deep sleep, and did this like major stem cell transplant. And he took a pretty substantial portion of stem cells there. Took from his side to make one like him, but opposite. Like him, but different, corresponding to him and fitting him. He made for the man a woman to be his wife. And so that leads to point number three. Not only is there companionship and complementarity, but just union. Uh, I've simply used that term that he used here for lack of any better one. Again, it has really lots more implications than we'll have time to get into today. But verse 24 says there, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It may occur to you, of course, that Adam and Eve themselves didn't have a father or mother, even. Uh, that, 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 that this previews, in other words, um, this institution of marriage for all the generations that will follow there, the leaving of family in order to cleave to the husband or wife. And this idea of holding fast and becoming one flesh, it it does refer to a physical union as well as a non-physical union. I mean, there is very much a literal sense to that. And again, we'll, we'll take that up in coming weeks. But that physical union is directly related to the first 
commission that we talked about for a couple of weeks or that cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with other image bearers of God. One of the primary purposes for the institution of marriage, one of the reasons that that is part, that one of the reasons that the project was unfinished when he made man and had not yet made woman is that one of the primary purposes of marriage is procreation. To have children and to build families that are the smallest institution, the smallest social institution through which God works out his will. That's part of the primary purpose of marriage. And again, that's not true for every marriage. And it's not true for every individual, some who don't even get married. married. But the institution exists with the primary purpose of having children and building families. And again, we'll, we'll, we'll take that up in more depth in the coming weeks. But, it, but it, can't, it can't go unsaid. If we're talking about God's design for marriage, God's purpose for marriage, and we don't mention children, we've, we've, not, we've certainly not addressed the subject. We've not even introduced the subject adequately. But this is truly the foundational verse about marriage in the Bible. Like, it, it's, the, it's the anchor verse when, uh, when asked by the Pharisees if, if it's okay for a man to divorce his wife for any reason, Jesus said, no. <laughs> and he cited Genesis 2.24 as the answer. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Therefore, what, what God has joined together, let no man separate. You remember that? phrase probably from all the traditional wedding ceremonies you've ever been in attendance for. Jesus grounds that statement of truth in this Bible verse in Genesis 2:24. Paul quotes it as well in the other one that you hear at a lot of weddings in Genesis or sorry in Ephesians chapter 5 where he's given instruction to Christian husbands and wives in how to uh, relate with one another as husband and wife, and he quotes Genesis 2.24. And he says, uh, makes reference to this, for this uh, cause a man shall leave his father and cling to his wife, and I, this is a mystery, but I say, um, he speaks of, this speaks of Christ and his church. Now, my point for citing, my, my, my reason for citing those two references, and, and by the way, let me, let me try to explain that one so it makes any sense. Jesus, a man, left his father for the purpose of giving himself for his bride, the church, and being with her. He, he, he modeled that on the most sort of cosmic and significant level of leaving his father to cling to his bride. And so Christian marriage gives us a picture of Christ and his church. But again, my reason for mentioning that is simply to say, if anybody wants to talk, talk honestly, and particularly any Christian wants to talk honestly about a biblical understanding of marriage, you cannot wiggle your way out of Genesis chapter 2. 
You, you, you can't get away from what he instituted in the beginning. Because it's the anchor verse for every other mention of marriage. I shouldn't say every other mention, uh, but the, particularly the most significant ones in the New Testament. You just can't get away from that as people would want to do. As people would want to redefine what marriage is. Or uh, simply uh, reduce it to an option, but uh, just one among many for such arrangements and so forth. As I've said before, one of my broken record statements to this series, I'm, I'm not so concerned about standing here myself or having you go out there somewhere and convince non-Christians to think Christianly about marriage. My primary concern is that Christians think Christianly about marriage. That Christians think biblically about marriage, that, that, that we understand what does the Bible demand in this regard, how much latitude does it give us uh, to understand what he means, and what are the boundaries beyond which we may not, must not go. And here are some of them right here. That this... His purpose of what, of what human beings would do in all, on the earth, in all the earth over the course of human history would include very centrally marrying man and woman, having children, building families, and through that, finding the joy and the challenges sometimes of companionship, of complementarity that comes from that union, bringing him glory, pointing to Jesus by way of our families themselves, and in the process, because we don't live in a perfect world, but a fallen one. Rubbing up against one another as husband and wife and everybody else in the house with our rough edges And being refined and made more holy uh, by that very process. God, it's part of God's design, central to his whole plan for humanity, uh, but certainly for those who would live in relationship in anything called a family. Well, we're going to conclude right there. And again, uh, in a certain respect, next week's message as we talk about family and children uh, will be a continuation of the same. Well, let's bow together. Lord, we bless you. We thank you, God, for the gift of the institution of marriage. And we do pray, again, that you would bless those relationships, that you'd be honored through them, that we would learn more and more how to love one another well, that we would be for each other good companions that we would embrace the complementary nature of our relationship, that one would be weak where the other is strong. God, we pray that we would be wholly committed to giving ourselves for the good of the other all the days of our life, and that whatever good purposes you have for particular marriages, Lord, um, that you would draw out. And for the even greater purposes that you have 
for, all, for the whole human race through the institution of marriage, Lord. Um, would you bless and magnify that we might be blessed by embracing what you called good. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.